Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's guest is James McPherson. James has over 18 years' experience in the Australian equipment rental industry, working at companies such as Coates and Onsite Rental Group. He would work his way through various customer-facing roles within the branches, but then would eventually find a passion for pricing. James became a specialist in analyzing pricing for rental companies and coming up with the right calculations on what the rental rates for equipment should be. In tune with this, he would also become a specialist in data, figuring out how rental companies could actually utilize their their data better to make better decisions for the future. From this passion, James would actually go on to start his own company called Wolf & Bear Services, where he provides consulting services to the equipment rental industry. James, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. To kick things off, can you talk to me about how you first got involved in the equipment rental industry? Yeah, absolutely. Like so many people in this industry, I really sort of fell into it. It wasn't part of the plan. Um, So it was early, um, I suppose, 2005. I'd finished up uni and I was looking for for some work. And a friend's father recommended uh, Coates High to me as a good option. So... I went in thinking that I'd uh, give it a go for a couple of years and move on to other things. And next thing you know, I was uh, still in the industry 18, 19 years later. It's funny how uh, how common a story that is. I suppose I went in without really understanding much about the industry. Um, I didn't come from a construction background or anything like that. Um, so I really came in quite green. But uh, certainly what I found in those days was it was a really inclusive industry in terms of the team that you worked in and we really did work as a family and we'd you know make sacrifices to help out each other and um, it was really really quite an experience to have that sort of group around you. In some respects that's changed over time as the industry sort of matured. Um, Some of that personal relationship has sort of fallen away a little bit but it does still exist in some corners and obviously the teams that you put together around you are a big part of how you foster that sort of environment. So talk me through the experience then. You're you're at university, you get a job at Coates Hire, you're a year in, you're like, yep, I've got another job coming. Two years in, yeah, probably another job coming soon. Next minute, it's 18, 19 years later and you've worked at a variety of places. Talk me through the process where you thought, no, I'm I'm in this industry. Like when, when was that moment? Look, that sort of came probably heading into about four or five years in. Um, I think it takes a couple of years for you to really sort of get comfortable with the industry and really get some confidence in what you're doing. And look, it's, I suppose, the evolution of the career as well. So my roles changed over that time and I found myself doing more, more stimulating activities that were more aligned with what my interests were in terms of actually running businesses and analysing how they ran and what we were doing and forecasting and building the business. Um, I think that if I, if I hadn't moved within those roles over that time, I probably would have reached a point that I probably would have left the industry. Yeah. Okay. I think it's very common for a lot of people. Like if you get bored, I think sometimes you, you sort of want that extra challenge or you want that interest that you went through. So, so when you were at university, what were you studying and what was your first role at at Coates Hire? And then where did it go from there? Yeah, well, originally I was studying a bachelor's, uh, Bachelor of Business um, specialising in marketing and electronic commerce, of all things. 
Um, so when I entered uh, the industry, it was with Coates Hire and it uh, was just in the branches and I was on the, uh, on the phones and on the front desk for a few years there. Um, the role did change a little bit in that time. Uh, we started up a dedicated access division and I was involved in that and working through some of those specialised roles in that area as far as asset allocation. Um, but it was really more around that sort of, I suppose, 2009-2010 period when I sort of, when I received a, a promotion to take over a role as commercial analyst. And as much as I enjoyed the day-to-day -day of dealing with customers and working on problems with people, I sort of relished getting into that environment where I was really sort of digging into data and really understanding the business from another side. So for the people that have never been exposed to maybe a larger company and all those sort of things, because a lot of these small ind independent uh, rental businesses probably don't have business analysts at their fingertips to try and analyze data. So do you want to explain what the role of a business analyst is within an equipment rental business? It often falls into the finance team. And essentially the role is about understanding the broader market, the customers and the fleet. Um, so it's bringing in external data wherever possible that can actually give us the ability to forecast sales and demand over time. So a lot of that information is obviously construction-based data coming from the ABS or from uh, providers such as BIS Shrapnel or Oxford Economics, um, CoreLogic. And we try to actually forecast out what the customer demand for individual products and locations would be over the long term. Hey, Rental Journal podcast listeners, tired of manual data entry in your CRM? Does your current CRM slow you down? It's time to build and close deals from anywhere. Remove manual data entry, create and send quotes in three clicks with Arrow. Finally, a powerful way to close deals on your phone. See Arrow in action at the ARA show in Las Vegas on October 17th through 20th. The Arrow team will be at booth 1636 to talk to you, answer your questions, and show you how you can search for inventory in seconds, track your pipeline, send e-documents, and more. Plus, while you're there, you can pick up a free t-shirt and enter Arrow's raffle to win a Yeti cooler. Unlock your growth with Arrow the tool built specifically for rental dealers to build and close big deals in a simple, powerful way. Enjoy the rest of the podcast, but be sure to check out Arrow at booth 1636 at the 2021 ARA show in Las Vegas. So we use that information in terms of budgeting and forecasting, but it also helps us to develop our plans around asset investment, high fleet investment, um, and some of the movements around the business as far as branch footprint locations, where we should be expanding or contracting based on activity, and really sort of driving data-driven decisions within the business. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think having the budget to have something like that within a business to help you guide and make decisions is is really valuable, but I think a lot of businesses struggle because they don't have that person internally because then their next point might be, I can spend my money on buying a new machine or I'm trying to grow the business and things like that. And that's where I think sometimes the external consultants can come in and, and provide that service uh, to smaller businesses as well. So, so talk me through the, the evolution from then. So you got into data. I'm assuming that that, that got your interest in, in learning about the database side and, the, and, and analyzing the data. Where did you go through? go to from there? 
Yeah, well, the role sort of evolved over time. So it was a new role when I moved into it. It hadn't existed before. So that sort of gave me a blank slate to work with to sort of develop what that role was within the business at the time. And it developed over time from being more of a generalist uh, data gathering analysis piece to getting more involved in the data-driven decisions around things like pricing within the business. Um, so we started to get a lot smarter in the way that we actually set our prices, the way that we pitched our tenders and putting a bit more data science around what those numbers were rather than sort of a finger to the wind to see what price you should go in at. Um, I suppose it was also a time of change within, in this case, Coates, but also the broader industry. Uh, rental took a long time to fully embrace technology. So when I first started in 2005, Coates, the largest player, was still on green screen. And we really weren't harnessing the data that we were collecting in the ways that we now know that we could have been and how that can assist the development and growth of the business. Over that time, during the, uh, the Malcolm Jackman years, we uh, both embraced uh, new technologies in terms of software like Baseplan. And obviously there was the period of the national merger and that made a big company even bigger. Um, but it also gave us the scope to sort of uh, explore these other technologies and these other sources of information and help us to drive the business through that period where there are a lot of acquisitions and a lot of bolt-on activity. And obviously we were on the cusp of entering into the mining boom. Mm. And so as the embracement of new technologies came and your role was evolving as, as an analyst and been working through that, like how, how did you sort of start specializing in, in rental rates and financial data around the actual equipment and stuff like and pricing and things like that? Yeah, look, at the time, um, it was decided within the Coates business that pricing uh, required its own, uh, not department, but its own team to manage prices nationally. Um, the reality is that pricing within rental up until that point had been very, uh, very ad hoc. And there was a lot of pure market-based pricing where people would just seek out other people's quotes and try and either match them or beat them. Um, there was a lot of uh, unsophisticated pricing based on things like targeted returns. Um, so when we actually applied the focus to it as a business, we realised that there was a lot more to it in terms of understanding why rates should be pitched at the levels that they were and where those opportunities actually came from. Um, too often we found that things like procurement advantage was being directly passed on to the customer and none of the actual advantage was being retained in terms of profit. Um, so if we found a supplier with a cheaper product that automatically flowed through to the price that was being offered to the customer rather than some of that being retained as commercial advantage. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So what's your opinion on discounting then being someone that's so passionate about maintaining a price based upon science almost and a calculation when you see someone going out there and just discounting to win deals that how does that make you feel it's very frustrating so i suppose we'll talk a bit more about this in the pricing piece but um so just the history of pricing within the industry 
has been very damaging long term. And there are a number of examples we've seen where, <clears throat> excuse me, um, pricing behaviour, particularly things like targeted returns, uh, were often uh, hinged on the actual capital cost of the equipment. So far too often, for example, the salesperson would be told the target return for this item is X percent. So it might be 3%, 6% year on year. And the natural tendency of the salesperson is to gravitate towards that price. They more often than not will ask how low can I go rather than how high can I get? Um, the damage that was done is that by using referential pricing, the prices were actually able to creep shorter and shorter into the span of and duration of the hire. So what we're always trying to do is push back against that shortening where the lowest rate for the longest duration starts being applied earlier and earlier within the life of a rental contract. And some of these historic practices, I can understand where they developed from, but um, things like fixed uh, ratio pricing, where we had the value of a weekly hire was the daily rate times by four. The danger that you have there is that when pressure is applied to that weekly rate, it then actually puts pressure on the daily rate and the shorter term, shorter duration prices. So we've got a few entrenched practices that we really have to try and break down if we're going to truly manage price. And one of the biggest issues that the industry faces is that we actually very rarely have a good grasp on true business costs. And what I mean by that is capturing the actual cost of an individual hire and provision of the equipment to the customer. Very few companies can actually tell you with any accuracy what their profitability is at either a product or a customer level because they don't actually capture the data that's surrounding what it actually costs to put that a piece of equipment out for that hire and for the duration of that hire, and then bring it back in. So without cost, you don't have profitability and without profitability, you're sort of flying blind. What a wealth of knowledge, mate. You are fully across the whole pricing metric. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I think a lot of people really dumbed down a little bit. And, and, and as you mentioned, try and calculate that ROI on the asset rather than the, the big picture. And we'll talk a bit more about that during the podcast, but yeah, it's, it's great to see someone so passionate and, and interested in such a, a niche part of a niche market already. So that's, that's, a, that's very, very good. So, so was there any other companies that you worked at through your time in, in various roles as well? Certainly. So after Coates hired, I actually um, spent some time within the on-site rental business. Um, which at the time was going through a period of uh, quite expensive growth. Um, and after about, I think, seven years, just under seven years with OnSite is when I decided to actually branch out and start my own business. Um, that resulted in what is now Wolf and Bear Services. And um, essentially, I decided that I wanted to relate back into the industry and help out the sort of SME space and help those players with the experience that I gained in those larger players and help them to develop and grow their businesses using some of that experience and some of that knowledge. 
So you mentioned that you wanted to help the SMEs and sort of grow there. Was there a moment in your career where you're like, yep, I want to do this on my own. I want to grow my own business. Like what well, talking through the mindset when you decide, because there's a lot of people in the industry that could probably go out and actually help other businesses, but they, they're a bit, I don't want to say scared of going out on their own business, but you know, but they they want to hold back a little bit. So talk me through the mindset you went through and the, and the moment that you decided to, to go out for yourself. Part of the answer to that question is that you reach a point in your career where you have enough confidence in yourself and the network that you have that you actually believe that you can do something on your own. And it does take time to build up that confidence, build up that network, build up that experience. You know, I certainly wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing today after only a couple of years in the industry and certainly not without the years of experience I've had in developing these systems for large players in the, in the market. At the end of the day, I suppose you just have to, if it's niggling in the back of your mind that this is something you want to do, at some point you're going to have to give it a crack. Otherwise, you'll end up at the end of your career and you'll just wonder what if. Yeah, I think that's the scary reality of, of almost saying I could have done that if I took that chance. And yeah, that's probably like one of my biggest fears with, with most things. Like even starting this podcast, it was like so many times I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to do it. Could be a lot of work. I'm not sure if people want to listen to it. How am I going to get guests? But it's just, you just got to do it. So sometimes you just got to take the plunge, jump in the swimming pool and, and sort of see how you go and see if you float. Yeah. And look, I suppose another part of the answer to that is that I was becoming increasingly frustrated by the consultants that I did see around the industry. Um, many of them, most of them came from either the big four or from uh, backgrounds that didn't include rental. And so they were charging exorbitant fees for what I saw as not very valuable insights into the market. Um, they were trying to apply things like retail theory into the rental industry and it just wasn't stacking up. They just didn't sort of understand that the, the nuances of rental. Like even me talking to a lot of people in the industry, it's probably one of the most common complaints around dealing with consultants or businesses that are trying to sell to rental companies where they're trying to explain to someone the basic concepts of rental and someone's coming in with a, a background in manufacturing or uh, some other re retail, as you mentioned, or whatever it might be, or just servicing on its own. And, and being able to find those consultants that actually understand the industry. And I think there is actually a bit of a shortage of, of consultants in the equipment rental industry. Yeah, well, the frustration with it is that you end up paying these people thousands of dollars a day to learn about the industry rather than actually utilising their knowledge and their skills. So what's your, your, your range of services? Are you all over Australia? Are you focused in a certain area? Like, how do you typically engage? No, we offer our services all around the country. Um, obviously, in the age of COVID, it's become quite the norm to uh, telecommute and work via video conference. Um, and particularly, Wolf and Bear offer a range of different services. So we offer everything from management consulting um, to assisting with developing things like remuneration plans, um, forecasting, market research, uh, building data capture plans. So talking about where the gaps in your knowledge currently are and what you have to do to fill them. Um, and we also do a lot of time, obviously, around pricing strategy, 
uh, but also helping out with business intelligence systems and reporting systems. So most, many of these can actually be delivered remotely quite well. And um, we do presentations and uh, meetings all around the country when we're, uh, when we're allowed and not in lockdown. Mm, yeah, I can imagine it, it's definitely one of those, those, uh, those roles where you could do it remotely. Was, was there a moment when everything locked down that it was a bit awkward to begin with or were you always doing things remotely? Like how did that sort of transition? Many of our services we were delivering remotely even before COVID. Um, so obviously things like sales activity and initiation meetings, they're always better done face-to-face. -face. Um, but even prior to COVID, because of the nature of the industry where so many companies have branches in remote locations, uh, when we're doing things like a discovery process, we'd often do those initiation interviews via video link anyway. Um, and as you know, it's now pretty much the norm for that to, that to happen. So even some clients that are not that far away physically will actually prefer to actually engage online. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so with your engagement so far in the industry and especially around the, the SME side of things, what do you think is the most common challenges you see those, those companies face when it comes to their processes? Reality is that the rental industry is a very surprisingly complex industry. And if you're managing a business, you're really juggling a whole lot of different responsibilities and development goals and pathways and getting the balance right between those is very, very difficult. Uh, you'll often find that you have uh, fun business functions and roles that are competing against each other within a company. So where you might have an operations team that's focused on minimizing cost, you might have a sales team that's focused on increasing volume, at not necessarily at a profitable price. And on top of that, you obviously have asset teams that are choosing who gets what equipment when. And so in some businesses, it's healthy to have a level of friction and conflict between functions but quite often that can actually become detrimental if those frictions and conflicts actually become uh, um, fract <laughs> fractious, shall we say. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's always gonna be competing agendas within organizations in terms of departments and things like that. But I think there's still a lot of businesses that are transitioning off manual processes or paper or not on mobile or they're not using bi as you mentioned before or they're they're just still a little bit archaic and and i think the ones that are fairly new to the industry might roll out more modern systems so i think there's a lot of companies out there that are still pretty manual in certain aspects and, and it's going to change over time but i think when more consultants like yourself are involved and can sort of display the big picture i think it's going to help out a lot yeah, look, I, I certainly think so. And I still come across some surprisingly large national players who are still on paper-based systems. And that's particularly true of their workshops and service teams. Um, but certainly one of the big challenges that you have in rental is balancing managing a business for the short term and managing a business for the long term. And for companies that lose sight of the long term, that's where you get into real trouble because 
you're not planning for things like whole of life asset management. So when an asset reaches the end of its effective life, do you actually have a plan for how you will dispose of that asset and actually either recoup some costs or repurpose it or redeploy that capital into another area of the business? You know, the classic example is where a business has a big influx of cash from a new investor. They go out, spend big on a whole lot of new equipment, think they're going fantastic, but if they haven't actually planned for the whole of life asset management of that group, what's going to happen in six, eight, 10 years time is a huge chunk of their fleet is about to come out of their active fleet. And if they haven't planned on reinvesting and actually smoothing out that big chunk, then they're going to end up with a depleted fleet and no capital retained to actually redeploy and reinvest. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think a lot of, a lot of companies, yeah, that especially in the access industry or the aerial industry, that, that 10 year mark with that major, major service is a big factor. And if you've got that aging fleet there that you're not planning in the future for, then it can really become a big burden uh, moving forward. Look, it can, and new technology can be surprisingly disruptive. So overnight, a stable asset class can be seriously disrupted by something like, let's take um, traffic signs, and all of a sudden, coloured signs became the norm. So if you were caught out with a brand new fleet of single colour yellow signs, all of a sudden, that, that capital is no longer worth what it was only a few months or a year earlier. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually never even thought of that in terms of traffic. What, what other assets are similar to that? Because I think even with some of the newer fleet with the like Cat and, and JOG and Genie and all those guys, they've got constant innovations coming out with their fleet. It would be the same thing. It would be if an asset doesn't have that technology stack on it uh, and you're running an older fleet, then your assets are depreciating much faster than what you expected. There's two aspects to it. So one certainly is technological driven. Um, well, there's technology, there's safety, but there's also environment. And the reality is that we are in a market and an environment that is shifting very quickly towards environmental, environmentally conscious products. And whether that is things like renewable energies, so powering sites using solar energies and batteries, um, but also we're seeing push in some surprising areas, things like site accommodation, to actually green the fleet that is actually going out to construction sites and mining sites. And it can be simple things like not using toxic paint, using LED lighting, using push button taps. Um, but the reality is that all of these things, some of these things cannot easily be retrofitted to existing fleets. So you need to be planning for what those trends are now and ensuring that you're not loading up on assets that will be irrelevant in a couple of years time. So let's dig a little bit deeper on this rental rate side of things. So maybe just for a new person that's entering the industry, can you explain what rental rates are and then typically how they're calculated? And then we'll dive a little bit deeper. Pricing in the equipment rental industry, rightly or wrongly, is probably one of the most complex pricing environments in any industry. Uh, that is partly because the industry has allowed it to become maybe a bit more complex than it otherwise should be. Um, but also there are a number of factors that have to be considered when you before actually landing on a price that's offered to a customer. So we've got some very simple ones to start out with. You have to recoup 
the cost of the capital cost of the asset over the life of the asset. So basically you have to pay it off. On top of that, you have both direct and indirect costs. So you have ongoing labor and maintenance to maintain the asset because they will break down over time. They'll have to have things replaced. You also have the direct labor cost and maintenance cost of preparing the asset for hire and bringing it back into the yard and off hire. Those are the simple ones. Where things start to get more complex is you need to make allowances for things like risk. So we're talking about the actual usage of the equipment. So if it's being used in a highly toxic environment, it might be exposed to seawater, salt water. It might be in a smelter. So there's a high chance of damage to the equipment before it actually comes back, whether that is recharged or not charged. Once you've accounted for that sort of risk, you then need to bring in factors like the geography. Is it working on a remote site that's going to be more expensive to service the equipment on site? for the life of the hire. You need to consider the volume of items that are going out to hire, who the customer is, what sort of agreements they may be on. There may be rebates involved. And once you've actually calculated all of those things, you then need to go back and make an adjustment for underutilization. So it is very rare that you will have an asset for the life of the asset that goes on hire and never comes back. More often than not, you're probably dealing with utilization of let's say 65, 70% which means that all of the costs that you've calculated then need to be adjusted to say, well, it's not actually gonna be earning money 30% of the time. So by the time you've actually considered all of those factors, coming down with a single price is actually quite complicated. And I sympathize with customers and their frustrations where they'll go out for quotation and they'll get three quotes back and they could vary by as much as 20 or 30%, depending on the supplier. What the customers don't understand and what we as an industry don't really explain very well is that the reason those differences can be so large is because of the individual assumptions that are made by the company that's setting the price. For example, you might have supplier one has 50 units in the yard and they're just trying to get them out the door. Supplier two who's responding might have one left. So they're holding onto it for the highest price that they can possibly get in the market. The customer doesn't see that and they don't understand the assumptions that have been made about maybe I'm planning for a large job in two weeks time. So I don't want to get rid of assets or allow them to go out the door at a cheap price. So there's a lot of intangibles within pricing. And as we discussed earlier, there's a lot of black holes in terms of the actual true cost data that we can use to build prices. So these assumptions may in some cases be quite wildly incorrect, but they flow through to the ultimately to the price that's offered to the customer. Yeah, I think Peter, Peter Lankin came on the podcast a while ago and he was he explained it really well in, in the fact of these rental rates aren't just paying for the equipment, they're paying the salaries of the people that work in that branch. So, so don't think that, oh, yeah, we bought the equipment for X and we're getting a rental rate of Y. No, think of it as a holistic profit and loss of a, of a business to operate to make each branch profitable and to keep running. And I think a, a lot of people will sometimes tie it back to, oh, yeah, this scissor costs 30 grand or 50 grand or whatever it might be, and then just divide it by X and, and then come up with a rate. So it's, uh, yeah, it is, it is a lot more complicated. It's... 
One of the hardest concepts to actually get people to understand is how the shape of the cost to serve changes over time. So the example I'll use is that a single day rental rate for a $3,500 hammer drill might be the same as the single day rental rate for a $14,000, $15,000 system. Now, the reason for that is that your labour cost in terms of the cost to serve is front loaded to the hire. So if it takes a mechanic an hour to run up a hammer drill and a scissor lift, his labour rate doesn't change depending on what he's running up. So if he's costing $50 an hour, it's still going to be $50 for the scissor lift and $50 for the drill or the, the saw. The actual additional costs that you're adding to that assumption, things like the capital cost of the equipment, then get spread out over the life of the asset. So those costs are quite minimal to begin with, whereas your labour cost and your cost to serve is front-loaded. So the same item might cost $50 or $100 a day, but it might be vastly different in terms of what it's actually worth in terms of capital cost. Yeah, and, and you mentioned distance as well. If, you're, if your technicians need to drive three hours in their service truck or van to get out there to do the maintenance, you've got the fuel of the truck, you've got the parts that he's using, you obviously got his time. Uh, if he gets the part, he has to drive back to the, to the branch and get another part. You know what I mean? Like all those things add up in terms of maintaining the equipment. And, and I think a lot of companies, they still underestimate the power of, and you sort of hit the nail on the head before, where some large companies aren't recording those sort of things on mobile devices. They're still on paper for service. Because if you can record those things on a mobile device and then record the cost directly against the asset, well, then it makes life a lot easier for people like yourself when you come in and you need to try and make these calculations and help businesses analyze their data. Many, and many companies would not appreciate how important customer profitability is. And it flows right through to the business decisions that you make every day as far as where you send your salespeople and who you send them to target. And just because it's a large national, international miner and they're going to hire a whole lot of stuff, it doesn't mean that they're very profitable in, for the supplier. So volume doesn't always equal profit. And sometimes the best customers are in the middle ground where they pay a fair price and take a few bits of gear every now and then. Mm. And even the, the example I was just thinking about just then was someone calls up, they want a certain size scissor lift, for example, or boom lift. We don't have it. We rent out the bigger one for the lower rate and they forget to bring it back, which then brings down that average rental rate for that unit when they should be switching it out. And, you know, all those sort of things are factors as well that you need to be able to, to pull in as part of that analysis. Yeah, look, this comes back to a lot of the work that I do in consulting, which is helping people to understand business measures, what they mean and how they actually flow through to the performance of the business. And the classic example is that, more often than not, um, asset utilisation can be miscalculated if you don't actually design the report correctly. And what it can mean is that the history of an asset can follow the asset instead of remaining with the location that it was actually hired. So if I use the example of the mining boom and we took a whole lot of high-performing assets, moved them out of Northern Australia and dropped them into metropolitan regions, 
a lot of those areas, if you look back historically, their asset performance was massive outperformance because they were getting very high rates up in the mining boom and you drop them into a metropolitan market where they're getting much lower rates. It's actually misleading as far as what's actually happening in the business, the trend that you're actually seeing in terms of the rates being achieved and the performance of the assets themselves. Mm, yeah, good example. So, so for the companies that you have worked with, and we won't throw any names out there or anything, how effective do you think companies are typically at analysing their own data? Because you mentioned BI as a factor, and I, 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 my opinion is that people are really just scratching the surface surface on 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 the data that's actually in their systems and, and making decisions from it. What's your your take on it? The equipment rental industry is actually very data rich. We have we already collect huge amounts of information around our customers, their job sites, around our fleets, around project activity we often don't make the most of that data being available to us. One of the reasons I've started doing what I've, I'm doing in the industry is that I've seen what I call the democratization of data. And it's this next generation of business intelligence tools. So you'd be familiar with Microsoft Power BI, Tableau, Qlik, some of these other ones that are going around. For the first time, we now have a suite of software offerings where businesses in the SME space can actually gain access to really rich data and insights into their business without having that huge cost that existed in the past where you'd have to spend $50,000 on a data warehouse. You can now actually get away with implementing these things on a much smaller budget and still benefit from all of those insights in actually growing your business and actually planning for the future. Yeah, I think it, it it changes the problem from, as you mentioned, building up this, this big data warehouse with all these cubes and things and table structures and things like that, which was just so complicated in the past, to now trying to figure out what do we actually want to measure? Because one thing that I can't remember which CFO was talking to, but there was someone in the industry that once said to me, it was like, we've got all these fancy dashboards in the industry sometimes but if we're not actually making decisions from them, what's the point of having them? So I think it, it can change the problem a little bit to where people have too much information. So you need to make sure that, and you sort of mentioned earlier that you're helping businesses figure out what their KPIs are and what their metrics are. Because I think that is also a challenge when you've got too much data as well. It's a big mantra of mine. Whenever we're talking about delivering a suite of reports for a business, it's going through and asking the question, why am I building this report? Because ultimately every report that you build is going to have an impact on behavior within the business. And you need to ensure that the information that you're presenting and what you're actually measuring is gonna drive the behavior that you want it to. So if you're only reporting on sales volume and not on price or profitability, you're going to drive volume, but at what cost? So what advice would you give to people that want to analyze their data better and want to, yeah, just to sort of start making better decisions based upon historical data? I suppose the, the biggest framework that I would offer to people when they're starting their data journey is to understand, first of all, what you have available, understanding what you don't have available, and understanding what the outcome is that you want from looking at this information. If you are driving 
decisions on fleet investment, you need to ensure both the quality of your data is there, but also the questions that you're asking when you're interrogating your data is actually driving you towards the outcome that you want. It's very easy, as you say, to get lost in huge amounts of data and go down the rabbit hole. And when you pop your head back up, you don't know closer to actually having the answer to what you're looking for. Mm. Look, I've been trapped in that that rabbit hole before where I'm, I'm building up a dashboard that I think is going to change the world. And I, I sort of get to the end of it. And I was like, what was the actual original purpose of this dashboard? Like, I, <laughs> I can't remember where I was going with this. So yeah, I think it's uh yeah, it's really good advice. And and look, anyone that is is looking for for help in this area, feel free to reach out to James or contact contact me and I can sort of put you in the right direction as well. All right, well, let's learn a little bit more about you. So who do you think played a big influence on you as a mentor? Look, there are a few people over the years. I don't think that I ever really had what you would describe as a direct mentor. And I think part of that is a result of the period that I entered the industry. It really wasn't something that was embraced that I found. Um, but certainly over the years, I've worked with and for leaders who I've both admired and taken great lessons from. You know, I go back to the early days of in uh, Victoria with Mark Rich and Peter Murphy, uh, who were absolute uh, fonts of knowledge in terms of the industry. Um, you know, through the Malcolm Jackman years, he was an absolute master of people management and engagement and really bringing the team together. Um, and in the latter years, you know, I found some people like uh, Gary Radford to be probably one of the most innovative salesmen I've seen in the industry over the years. His approach to sales was completely different to what I'd seen elsewhere and it really sort of turned the conversation with the customer completely around and i have great respect for for a lot of those people who i've come across across the years one of the things that i like about gary as well he, he's got a different brain when it comes to marketing as well he he just thinks differently yeah no he, he's someone that i definitely look up to and i think he's a, he's a great person that the industry can can learn from and and those other people as well so if you could go back and give some advice to your younger self, what would you say? I suppose it would be quite simple. It would be to take risks, take chances, and don't hold on to things because of fear or because of anxiety. It's to actually embrace the change and embrace the, the opportunity and the chance to actually do something. It's you can spend your, uh, spend your life keeping your head below the parapet, but uh, if you don't ever pop it up, you won't see what's on the other side. Yeah, I feel like I, that's probably something that motivates me a lot. Like I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. Like I think it's a big fear of mine that I become stagnant. I think when something becomes too easy, I feel like I'm not progressing. Like I, someone told me this a while ago and I sort of, I think about this every now and then. It's like, what have I achieved today to like make me or whatever I'm trying to achieve better for tomorrow. It's like such a simple thing to think about, but if you like spread all those thoughts over a whole year out, you can actually achieve quite a lot in terms of self-development and things like that. And, and that's why, yeah, if anyone's ever thinking about starting their own business, which you've obviously done, that's amazing. You should always just take the risk because what's the worst that can happen? You just get a job. <laughs> yeah. And 
look, there's a, uh, it's amazing how opportunity, uh, opportunity finds you when you, uh, when you're looking for opportunity. And when you start one business, all of a sudden another one comes along and you roll with that. And if there's uh, one quote that I could throw at you from Richard Branson, it's screw it, let's do it. Very nice. Very nice. All right. And so how do you define success? I think success is a very personal thing and people can be successful in their personal life. They can be successful in their work life and their finances and their relationships. I think that success is when you reach a sense and a point of contentment in yourself the decisions you make and the life you lead. All right, James. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. This podcast episode was proudly supported by our premier partner, Kenata. Mm-hmm.